Dr. Peter McCulloch, thank you very much for joining me. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to have you on the podcast, and I appreciate that you've got up extra early on a Sunday morning to be here. 6 a.m. over there in Dallas? Yeah, 6 a.m. I got the coffee brewing. Uh, Dallas, Texas is a great place. Uh, probably like a lot of Australians, you like the independence of Texas. It's uh, really the only state in the United States that for 10 years was its own country, the Republic of Texas. In fact, I went to undergraduate university at Baylor University, which was the oldest university in Texas, and it was founded during the time where Texas was its own country. And uh, uh, today I work as an internist and cardiologist. I'm in practice in Dallas, Texas. I see patients every week, but I'm also an academic physician. I'm the editor of two major journals uh, worldwide, and I'm the president of the Cardiorenal Society of America. I've taken a, a position as a chief medical advisor for the Truth for Health Foundation. So I'm very active now in COVID-19. I've spent over a year and a half now studying this viral infection, every aspect of it, every aspect of the clinical illness. I have over 45 publications in COVID-19. I've had the illness myself. People in my family have had it. So many have said that I have probably more medical authority in giving my opinions on COVID-19 than anybody in the world. Um, Obviously, at the moment, uh, there's a great deal of censorship going on. So you may not be popping up on the mainstream platforms as Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, which I'm sure you're familiar with what's going on at the moment. I'm sure it's similar over there in the United States. So uh, I've been a, a fan of your work for a while. Um, and what you, you explain things in a way where the average person like myself can understand the message you're trying to get across. And that's extremely important now uh, here in Australia, because as we had that conversation the other day, I tried to feel you in as much as I could in that short time, but it's um, pandemonium over here at the moment. Um, The Australian public is being fed one narrative uh, from our government and the health officials. And I wanted to sort of break that and get you on here and have a chat and hopefully learn something and more importantly, help the Australian people make an informed decision when it comes to the vaccine. Well, you know, there's um, a way to to think about how countries and societies should react to this pandemic. And I've published on this and I presented it in the U.S. Senate, and it's called the four pillars of pandemic response. It's an important concept for people to understand that when a virus like this hits uh, in a pandemic, or let's say it's a bacteria, uh, it could have been a bacteria, could have been a fungus. Uh, If a um, biological pandemic hits a population, there's always four things that we need to do. One is to try to reduce the spread of the virus or the the organism as best as we can, but that shouldn't be the sole focus. The most important thing is to treat patients, treating. So we should focus on the very small number of people who fall ill and treat them early. With any infection, the principle is treating it early. If we allow the infection to brew every day, day after day after day, with this virus, we have two to four weeks of time to treat it early. We have plenty of time. It's not like patients uh, uh, develop it and they're gone in a day. We have plenty of time to organize early treatment. That's the most important. That's the second pillar. The third pillar is in-hospital treatment. Heaven forbid anybody needs the hospital. We should have hospital resources, but we shouldn't rely on the hospital as the main source of treatment because as everyone knows, hospitalization is itself a bad outcome. So we should always be working to try to reduce hospitalization and death. If this becomes a treatable illness at home, I think everyone could agree that the anxiety levels would come way down. So hospitals, pillar number three. Pillar number four is herd immunity, trying to get to herd immunity. And if a disease truly is amenable to a vaccine and the vaccine is safe and effective, it should be tried. So there's always four pillars of pandemic response. And what's happened in Australia, in the United States and elsewhere, our public health officials have really been perseverating on two of the four pillars and that is trying to reduce the spread of infection uh, and vaccination. And they've really missed out on the second pillar. Yeah, okay. So uh, to give you an idea, there's no discussions in Australia at present regarding any other form of treatment other than the vaccine. So the two vaccines we have in Australia is the Pfizer vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine. Now, the AstraZeneca vaccine there was a recommendation on the age. 
So you shouldn't get it if you're under 50. You shouldn't get it if you're under 40. And it kept dropping down. And now they're encouraging uh, young people, if you can't, if there's no Pfizer available, uh, that to go ahead and get the AstraZeneca. Um, and that's what they're pushing at the moment. Now, the constant change in advice, I think, is what's really concerning people because there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy in Australia. And I think a lot of that comes down. We're not getting a clear message. Um, now, I myself have, as I said, I've listened to a lot of what you've had to say. And I'm sure everybody is aware of ivermectin. So if we can quickly uh, talk about ivermectin and how that works uh, in the treatment stage. Yeah, let's pick up on treatment first, and then we'll address the vaccines. You saw me shaking my head about um, about your comments about the vaccine, relaying the public health stance. But early treatment really works. We've been at this for 18 months. There's been hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of studies on treating COVID-19, the illness, and reducing the viral replication of the virus itself, SARS-CoV-2. What your listeners should understand is that there are three major aspects to the infection. First, the virus actually does invade the body and it replicates. It actually produces more viral particles. That's the first part. Second part is inflammation. These viral particles trip off inflammation in the body in a very unique way, unlike other viruses. So the inflammation, there's a pattern. We can actually measure it in the bloodstream. It's different than other viruses and it's severe. And then the third part is, and this is really unique to this infection, is blood clotting, internal blood clotting. You know, when you get a cold or even you get influenza, you get another viral infection, you don't get blood clotting. That's what's really unique about this. In fact, the part of the virus that causes the blood clotting is called the spike protein. The spike protein is a little stick on the ball of the cartoon of the virus. The spike protein was modified in the virology lab in Wuhan to be more infectious and more dangerous. And one of a byproduct of that gain of function research is that it causes blood clotting. And so that is the very, very unique feature. And you can imagine viral replication, cytokine storm or inflammation and blood clotting. There's not going to be a single pill that manages all this. And everybody wants to gravitate to a single pill. So you mentioned ivermectin. Sure. Ivermectin is one of four to eight drugs we use in treating COVID-19, but it's not the end all and be all of COVID-19. So we have to use drugs in combination. We have major networks now across the world that are using drugs in combination. So just in brief, if a patient uh, who's a senior, a citizen, one just contacted me this morning, so a good thing I'm up, over age 65, uh, developing severe symptoms. In the United States, we can give a monoclonal antibody infusion by Regeneron. It's a combination of two uh, fully humanized antibodies. It's an infusion we give in the emergency room. Our government has pre-purchased these, uh, 500 million doses. So we have a lot of uh, doses around. Doctor makes a phone call, patient comes into a sterile room, gets the infusion, goes home. It's the best way to manage it. President Trump got one of these infusions. The whole world saw that. And I think it'd be great if Australia, because you don't have very many cases, if you have monoclonal antibodies available, you could use them. Beyond monoclonal antibodies, you're right, we get into drugs that reduce viral replication. So there's hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine is supported by over 300 studies now. So anytime somebody wants to argue about hydroxychloroquine, I always say, well, which one of the 300 studies you want to start with? And then we can start with the next one and the next one. But it's very well supported, particularly used early randomized trials, observational studies started early. Hydroxychloroquine, is the nice thing about it is very safe. Uh, it's slow acting. We can use it in pregnancy. We've used it in rheumatoid arthritis and malaria prevention. The doctors know the caveats on uh, hydroxychloroquine. There's a few caveats with respect to what's called the QT interval on the 12 lead EKG, as well as a blood disorder in African-Americans called uh, a G6PD deficiency where we can't use it, but that's rare. Um, or we can use ivermectin, as you pointed out. Ivermectin is um, an anti-parasitic drug. It's used to treat scabies and some other illnesses. It's, it's the most commonly used drug in veterinary medicine. So anybody who has horses and dogs and cats know about ivermectin. And ivermectin um, cannot be used in pregnancy. It has a few side effects, uh, uh, transient neurologic side effects like numbness and tingling. But the nice thing about ivermectin is it is effective in COVID-19 and it's versatile. So it can be used early and late 
it reduces the entry of the virus into the nucleus of the human cell, and it also reduces the activity of the spike protein. That's the reason why ivermectin is so valuable. We combine it with doxycycline or azithromycin only because there's about a 2% overlap with some bacterial infections in the uh, um, nose and mouth, what's called atypical infections, uh, mycoplasma uh, uh, and chlamydia and pneumonia. Those are the two that can be overlapping about 2% of cases. So we cover that with doxycycline and azithro. And then beyond that, we actually move into the inflammation part of things. So two randomized trials, the Stobic trial and the principal trial support the use of budesonide. Budesonide is a strong steroid inhaler in the United States is called Palmacord. And we give two puffs twice a day. That actually helps. We use oral prednisone or hydrocortisone or dexamethasone, just like we would use in the hospital, but we use it as an outpatient, typically starting it on day five or if there's pulmonary symptoms. We use a drug called colchicine, which is used for arthritis and gout, proven in a large clinical trial called co-corona trial. Uh, we use that for 30 days. And that reduces uh, a lot of the chest uh, symptoms uh, and is an anti-inflammatory. We use aspirin. Everybody knows about aspirin, but in high adult doses, 325 milligrams, because studies from UCLA have shown that the virus, part of its um, mechanism of causing blood clotting is it's a super strong aggregator of platelets. And so aspirin inhibits the aggregation of platelets. And then for very high-risk people, I'd say people with heart and lung disease, uh, over uh, uh, age 50, we actually use a blood thinner called Lovenox or low molecular weight heparin. It's injectable. Uh, we order a couple cartons of it, or we use an oral uh, anticoagulant. It's called a novel anticoagulant. So in total, we're talking about uh, four to six drugs used in what's called sequence multidrug therapy. Um, I was the first to publish this in uh, the American Journal of Medicine of 2020. That was a breakthrough paper, uh, very heavily downloaded and cited worldwide. Uh, it became the uh, basis of the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons Home Treatment Guide for Americans. And then the update with uh, ivermectin and monoclonal antibodies, all the new data came out in December of 2020 in reviews in cardiovascular medicine. This has nearly 200 references. It's the most heavily uh, supported document that exists. All the other guidelines, you have TGA guidelines in Australia. We have National Institutes of Health and Infectious Disease Guidelines elsewhere and World Health Organization beyond that, none of the guidelines address what to do with a sick patient at home. So the papers that I've published stand as the only treatment guidance to the world on how to treat COVID-19 at home. Other organizations have helped greatly. We have the Frontline Critical Care Consortium that has uh, protocols that haven't been published and tested per se, but they're called Math Plus and IMath. They're very useful. They're kind of more minimal uh, uh, condensed versions of uh, the sequence multidrug therapy. Uh, we have treatment domiciliary in Italy, Bird Group in the United Kingdom, Panda out of South Africa, now worldwide, COVID Medical Network in uh, Australia. So doctors can work with these drugs in combination. And I want to encourage anybody listening to this, don't focus on a single drug. Everyone will say, aha, ivermectin is controversial or, or, or hydroxychloroquine is controversial. I, I've said, I point to Dr. Um, uh, Chetty in South Africa and Dr. Brentios in South America that have shown they can treat it without ivermectin hydroxychloroquine. You can actually treat it at home using the other drugs in sequence. They use a few more drugs to reduce inflammation and you can still treat the illness. So there's no excuse for any Australian doctor to ever turn down a patient who needs treatment for COVID-19. High risk patients age over 50, where there's over a 1% chance of hospitalization and death should be treated in Australia with a sequence multi-drug approach with the drugs available at hand. And, and um, individuals below age 50, if they present with severe symptoms or they have medical problems, should be treated. If an Australian is diagnosed with COVID-19 and told to go home and quarantine with no treatment, and if they have high-risk features, there is an unacceptable risk of being hospitalized or dying with that condition over the course of the next two to four weeks. It's unacceptable. And every Australian should demand early treatment. Yes. Yeah, so that's the, that's the main issue that we've got here. The general public aren't aware of any other treatments other than the two vaccines we have available. We have daily press conferences here in uh, New South Wales, where they will talk about the daily case numbers, remind everybody to get vaccinated the penalties, as I spoke about yesterday, the penalties for 
not wearing a mask for leaving a five kilometer radius, all these things have increased to thousands of dollars. It's, it's keeping the public in a state of fear and wanting to get vaccinated, as I said, because we're being promised that vaccination is the only way we can get our freedom back. So, the, so in your opinion, the vaccine. Well, let's talk about the vaccine. Yeah. Okay. So the first off, it's not a single vaccine. It's not. It's actually a group of vaccines. And I was asked in the major media to comment a few weeks ago about the Olympics. And one of the, uh, the interviewers, Rob Schmidt for Newsmax, said, well, Dr. McCullough, what do you think about the vaccine? I said, listen, it's the Olympics. I said, a Russian is going to come with potentially having the Sputnik vaccine. Someone from uh, South America could have had the Coronavac or Sinovac vaccine. If it was United States, it could have been Johnson & Johnson. If it was Australia, it could have been uh, Pfizer or AstraZeneca. Um, and, and so it's not a single vaccine. These are different products. They're made by different companies. And everybody should listen to this, should understand they're not the same. It's not, a, it's not the vaccine. So you just pick any one. First off, you ought to be suspicious that you should pick any one because they're different products. So even the ones you have, you have Pfizer and AstraZeneca. Let's just talk about them. Uh, Pfizer is a messenger RNA product on a lipid nanoparticle, which is brand new technology, brand new technology. AstraZeneca is adenoviral DNA in an adenoviral associated vector which uh, is replication incompetent, meaning in a sense, it's a modification of a virus. Uh, That's what AstraZeneca is, and it's rendered incompetent. So the Pfizer vaccine is actually given in a uh, a dose of what's called 30 micrograms. The AstraZeneca is given in a dose of particle number, okay? And it's it's a number. So they're very different um, vaccines, okay? So the other uh, messenger RNA vaccine that your audience may know about is Moderna. Moderna Moderna is also a messenger RNA vaccine, very similar to Pfizer, very similar to Pfizer, except Moderna is three times the dose. Moderna is 100 micrograms. So everybody talking about these vaccines, they, they talk about them as they're interchangeable. They're not. They're very different. So Australians should know that out of the clinical trials done largely in the United States, Pfizer initially against previous versions of the virus, transiently had about 90% vaccine efficacy, meaning that it looked like it could cut down the infection if someone was exposed by about 90%, assuming equal exposure. But in the clinical trials, less than 1% ever got COVID. So even in in, in Pfizer, if you got placebo, you'd still have less than a 1% chance of getting COVID. So the clinical trials failed in getting high-risk people who are exposed to COVID. That's a big caveat. And not only that, it was only two months in duration. So we didn't really get a chance to see if they worked over time. Two months is is nothing. Somebody may not have gone out of their house in two months, you know, and they never would have even gotten a challenge. Uh, AstraZeneca, um, uh, its efficacy in studies uh, similar to our Johnson & Johnson vaccine is about 70%. You know, 70 and 90 is a very big difference, very big difference. Um, So the AstraZeneca vaccine, everybody should know, doesn't work as well as Pfizer doesn't initially. On top of that, um, AstraZeneca had an initial vulnerability and that is to the South African variant, so-called beta variant. The beta variant blew past AstraZeneca like it was nothing. So it gave us an idea that um, in fact, a different variants could escape the effects of the vaccine. Now we fast forward uh, what we've learned with uh, Pfizer out of Israel. Israel exclusively used Pfizer with a contract Israel has over 80% of the population vaccinated, and they have over 80% of their explosion of COVID-19 cases um, uh, being fully vaccinated. So uh, 65% of Israelis really sick with uh, COVID-19 in the hospital have been fully vaccinated. Uh, We know that um, in other heavily vaccinated countries that were pretty quiet, They've had an explosion of cases that includes uh, Singapore, Iceland, Gibraltar, Seychelles, any of these kind of isolated places where you can really study the cases well. Um, it looks like 
the vaccines, uh, things were pretty quiet in these countries and they got to a high level of vaccination and the number of cases exploded. So we had three events that made us understand what's going on. One was a wedding in Houston, Texas, where everyone had to be vaccinated to go to the wedding. And then when people departed, a bunch of people got COVID. And then we had a, a private plane flight of Democratic lawmakers from Texas to Washington. And when they were on the plane together, all supposed to be vaccinated, and they were, they landed in Washington, and some people were sick with COVID, and then they got, came in contact with our vice president, and they had to rush her to the hospital to test her. And, um, uh, and then finally, there was a, a British naval vessel, 3,700 sailors on it. They were all fully vaccinated. They're out in the Mediterranean. They make a few stops. And then a bunch of kids on the, on the boat get sick with COVID-19. And so this was studied, a paper by um, uh, a Fahrenheit and colleagues out of Houston demonstrated that the Delta variant, which is now the predominant variant, it's nearly 100% of all the virus that we're seeing in the outbreaks now, the Delta variant can easily get past the Pfizer vaccine. If vaccinated people can get the virus, they can uh, uh, carry it and pass it to others. And so that's the reason why we're having such a problem with these outbreaks. So the, vac the vaccinated people are now spreading the virus all over the place, and they're even infecting unvaccinated people. So they're making things uh, worse. There was a paper by Venkata Krishnan and colleagues that has carefully studied the mutations. The Delta variant has seven mutations in the spike protein. The UK uh, 20th variant report that just came out August 6th showed 20 additional mutations are possible. So it's heavily mutated. And the spike protein now is dodging the antibodies that's produced by the uh, Pfizer vaccine. The Pfizer vaccine has been essentially rendered useless against the Delta variant. There was a paper out of Israel showing over time, uh, the Pfizer vaccine begins to fail against all the variants. And there was a paper out of the Mayo Clinic in Boston recently by uh, uh, Perunic that has shown that with Pfizer, even in July in America, that Pfizer had only 44% protection. Israel uh, uh, ministry, health ministry estimates 17% protection with Pfizer. So what I'm telling you with Pfizer, since you have it, Pfizer, um, again, it's a lower dose than Moderna, far lower dose. Uh, Pfizer is failing wholesale at this point in time. There'd be no reason for an Australian to go out and get the Pfizer vaccine. They, they're not going to get any reliable protection from uh, COVID-19. Now with AstraZeneca, we don't know. AstraZeneca, even though it had in the clinical trials a lower degree of protection, uh, we simply don't know. One of the things that's not happening in Australia and America and the UK and the EU that everybody should be worried about, we are not having any government reports week by week on how the vaccines are doing, are they working, and are they safe, and what are the safety numbers. So our governments are not giving us any information week by week. This is a medicinal product. It's a biologic product. We're being asked to take it. We're being forced to take it, but we are given, despite the, these numbers and the data that I'm giving you, none of our government officials are coming clean or being transparent with either efficacy or safety. The question everyone has is why? Why aren't they being transparent? I can tell you if I was running the program anywhere, it's, it's like any investigational program. It should have uh, a, an external critical event committee, a data safety monitoring board, and human ethics committee. All of these, they're investigations. And these external bodies ought to be analyzing the data and giving feedback to government officials on what to do. And there should be regular reports, whether it's weekly or monthly. And we should have had that. We know in the United States, we saw this, these deaths occurring. Uh, the first um, signal that things were going wrong were January 22nd in the United States at about 27 million people who who'd have vaccinated. Uh, we had a mortality uh, number reported in that exceeded uh, any limits of acceptability. That was January 22nd. And if we would have had a data safety monitoring board, it would have been, the program would have been shut down in February. And I, I chair data safety monitoring boards for big pharmaceutical companies, for device companies, for the National Institutes of Health. This is my business. And I can tell you this program for safety reasons should have been shut down in February. But because there's been no transparency, no report on safety, and, and the governments actually want to tell um, individuals, the public, that the products are safe, they can prove it. You say, prove it. If you think it's safe, prove it, show it, show it to us. Yeah, they have all the data. If they think it's effective, prove it. But they can't just get out there and say it's safe and effective and you have to take it 
without proving it. Those things actually must be proven. And Australians have to demand that. Say, prove it. Show us that it's safe and effective. It's unacceptable. Uh, right now, there are reports in Australia that more people die of the vaccine than they die of the respiratory illness. I mean, that is just so unacceptable. These vaccines are nowhere close to being safe. They have a dangerous mechanism of action. They're genetic transfer technology. So they do genetically manipulate the bodies of Australians. And uh, we know that that manipulation must occur for at least two weeks because the spike protein, which is dangerous, is produced by the cells in the body that take up the vaccine. And the spike protein circulates in high concentrations for at least two weeks, it's measurable. That, yeah, almost certainly it doesn't happen with the natural infection to that level. And, and uh, uh, the second after the second shot of Pfizer, we know that it's tamped down. We don't know after AstraZeneca how long that spike protein is produced, but I can tell you now uh, we have very good uh, analyses from these products, these synthetic genetic products that they may last in the body for a long time. We know that these particles, these lipid nanoparticles go everywhere in the body. They go into the brain, they go into other organs. Uh, there was uh, a papers published back uh, 10 years ago, certainly a good one from China two years ago in 2018, showing that lipid nanoparticles specifically go to the human ovaries and testes. Uh, in fact, there's a a figure that's shown frequently from that Chinese paper showing that everybody knew or should have known that these are going to target the reproductive organs in high concentrations. And so this was really came to the head when um, the Japanese demanded that Pfizer do a biodistribution study as part of the regulatory package. And they had to inject animals with radio labeled lipid nanoparticles to see where they go in the animal's body. And in fact, Pfizer showed that as they go into the various organs and lipid nanoparticles dump off the genetic material and then wash out, they remain and hyper-concentrate in the human ovaries over 48 hours. In fact, they didn't analyze days after that, but it's concerning how these nanoparticles were really aggressively taken up in the ovaries. And I can tell you, as these particles are taken up, they dump the genetic payload and then the ovarian cells, actually in a zone of the ovary called the corpus luteum, they actually start to produce the dangerous spike protein. And as the spike protein is produced in local tissue, the body attacks the spike protein. So there's automatic inflammation in those areas. The spike protein pops up on the cell surface and then the body really starts to attack those cells. And then a spike protein breaks free and it starts circulating in the body. And when it circulates, it damages red blood cells. It causes blood clotting, damages sensitive organs like the heart and the brain. In fact, lipid nanoparticles go to the heart and the brain. So in a sense, these vaccines are uh, like a little mini biologic disaster uh, for the human body. And what the hope would be is that this would be such a small dose and such a small exposure that the body would get some immunity to this if they survive the vaccine, and then you'd be protected against the respiratory illness. Now, as I've told you, it looks like the respiratory illness has changed. So the vaccines no longer protect against it, but someone who takes an injection of Pfizer, Moderna, uh, or Pfizer or AstraZeneca, they get the full front of the spike protein assault on their body and all the consequences. What's happened recently in Australia is it was a isolated case in Cairns. Um, one gentleman who caught the virus from a fully vaccinated reef pilot. Um, and when they were questioned about that, uh, the government health officials, they stated that, yes, if a a fully vaccinated person can still spread the virus, but it's not as bad. So it's sort of a watered down version of, of COVID-19 that they're passing on. Would you say there's any element of truth in that? I don't think there's, again, it's up to them to prove that. What dictates a mild case versus a severe case is early treatment. So this is really important. So if patients receive any form of early treatment, they can end up with a mild uh, case. I can tell you that people who are thinner, who are fitter, uh, those who are better in terms of taking supplements, zinc, vitamin C, vitamin D, uh, quercetin, they tend to have milder cases. People who are obese, who are older, who have more medical problems, they tend to have severe cases. The vaccine doesn't really have much of a role in making a mild case versus a severe case, all these other determinants. So I think, I think what the governments are trying to do is say there's a consolation prize, saying the vaccines really don't work, but as a consolation, you may get less severe disease. Right now, I don't see that supportable. I hope that's the case. Um, there are people in my family who have taken the vaccine, my wife's family. Um, you know, About half of Americans 
you know, ill-advised took the vaccine. Most Americans never asked what was in these things. They just lined up for the shots. Now we're starting to realize, holy smokes, that they're not, uh, they're not safe. They're genetic transfer technologies. Half of America now does not want the vaccine. Just no way. The vaccine centers have been empty for months. They don't want the vaccine. Um, but we, those who took the vaccine, we wish them well. I hope they get something out of it. It looks like the, be- the benefit right now is pretty minimal, though. Yeah, and, and that's, I think we're at different stages in this um, in Australia compared to the United States, that at the moment, our vaccination rates are getting higher every day. America's past that. And now America, you see, as you said, the decline in, in people willing to get vaccinated. Uh, but how long that will take here, I don't know. But what's quite concerning uh, to myself and many others is the message that children are being affected by the virus. They've highlighted that numerous times that this Delta variant is affecting children. And that's quite concerning. They bring in Moderna in, as I said to you the other day, um, they're looking at doing trials here in Australia on babies from six months up into children, 12 years of age. And they've got mass vaccination hubs set up um, in huge arenas in Sydney for HSC students who are doing their high school certificate, 17, 18 year olds uh, to get them all vaccinated. Now, I think we can all agree and we all know that this virus isn't killing young people. Um, And and their reasoning for the mass vaccination of young people is that it will help keep others protected from the virus. So if you're vaccinated, you have less of a chance of spreading it on to somebody else in most cases, who's already vaccinated. So you've got to get vaccinated to protect somebody else who's already vaccinated. Um, that, that's their way of putting it across to the people as to why it's important. Now, what would you say in regards to that? Well, there's a couple of principles of vaccination. One, the vaccine is always because the person who takes the injection, they take on all the risk of the vaccine. The, the decision to take the vaccine is always based on the individual, not on somebody else. So you would never take a vaccine to, quote, protect someone else because that risk is. And, and I can tell you, I'm a doctor uh, and my hospital does require vaccines. Uh, so, for instance, the influenza vaccine and the hepatitis B vaccine, you know, I've taken those. This year I took influenza and shingles because I'm at the age. So, so, you know, I accept vaccines. We have about 70 vaccines that we use in human medicine. So. Uh, 98% of Americans, you know, take their vaccines. So um, uh, I can tell you, but the vaccines are always for the individual. So I take influenza because I could be in the emergency room and uh, somebody could come in from a senior home and cough in my face and give me influenza. So that vaccine is to protect me. Uh, Just like with hepatitis B, I could be in a heart catheterization laboratory or in the ICU and I could be jabbed with a needle. The hepatitis B protects me, not somebody else. Same thing with COVID. So the only reason to take a vaccine is to protect an individual. With um, COVID-19 through the entire pandemic, children have accounted for 19, 20, 21% of all the positive tests. So the kids have had it all along. And if the rate now is 22% in kids and 23, it's not much different than before. So there's no crisis in children. Large numbers of children now are completely immune because COVID-19 is so mild in children. There's estimates now that you know, it could be a quarter, maybe even a half of all children in the United States are completely immune. And if a, if a child gets COVID-19, in a sense, it's a blessing because they develop complete and durable natural immunity. They can't get it again. As we've already pointed out, the vaccine uh, provides almost no immunity. Uh, they can carry it and give it to others. And um, it doesn't prevent somebody from getting COVID-19. So the natural immunity is way better than the uh, vaccine immunity. And um, this proposition to children is particularly worrisome. And uh, we already see that the non-fatal complications of COVID-19 tend to happen in younger people because the human body takes up more of these foreign genetic material because they're younger cells. They more vigorously take this up and they manifest these um, uh, side effects, which are severe uh, in four major organ areas, uh, neurologic, the brain and spinal cord, in uh, the heart, what's called myocarditis or inflammation causing uh, chest pain and heart failure and arrhythmias, uh, the immune system uh, causing uh, problems uh, with immunity and inflammation in the body, and then the blood system. In fact, there's a name of a disease now that goes with AstraZeneca. It's called vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpurea. So we actually have new diseases named on the vaccines. 
And so even the US FDA has got warnings now that are important to children. So the US FDA for Pfizer and Moderna say don't use Pfizer and Moderna in children because they can cause heart inflammation called myocarditis. We already have 4,000 cases in the United States where these children within a couple of days of taking the shot develop chest pain, uh, signs and symptoms of heart failure, EKG changes, elevations in a blood test called troponin injuring the heart, way higher than we see in heart attacks. 90% have to be hospitalized. They go on heart failure medications. They can't have any physical activity. A lot of kids can't return to school. I mean, this is a nightmare. I'm seeing these patients in my practice right now with this myocarditis. We don't know how to treat it. I can't seem to get it to stop. I've had one case that's going on for a couple months now. I mean, I'm really worried about these. And we think that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, we know from the clinical trials, from Pfizer, for instance, when they did the clinical trial of age 12 to 15, first author is Frank, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, May 27th. We knew that, that at least 60% of these kids who got the vaccine, they developed fever, body aches. Um, uh, parents had to give them uh, uh, acetaminophen and try to calm the fever down. We don't know how many kids their hearts were injured there, but it's a large number of kids who get sick after the vaccine. And we know there's no clinical benefit. So in the Frank study, uh, there was only 18 uh, cases of the sniffles in placebo. Uh, so, the, so the vaccine didn't do much uh, with respect to uh, protecting against anything. There was no mention of spread to family members and they were looking for it. Um, so the vaccine was, had no clinical benefit in children and made them pretty sick. Now the FDA has these warnings, but to make matters worse, uh, there are warnings on AstraZeneca in children and women ages 18 to 48 about blood clots in really sensitive areas in the cavernous sinus, in the brain, um, in the uh, um, transverse sinus. These blood clots are impossible to treat. They're hard to take out surgically. Uh, it ruins people neurologically. Uh, the FDA now has put a warning on um, Johnson & Johnson for Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is paralysis in uh, adults and children going up the legs up to the body, and then they can't breathe and they go on the mechanical ventilator. Canada just put out a warning on um, uh, AstraZeneca for uh, uh, Bell's palsy, which is a, a, a paralysis of the face. This has occurred in thousands of people, uh, countless numbers of uh, children. In the United States, we've already lost um, uh, over a dozen children under the age of 15. We've lost, uh, I think, nearly uh, 79 or 80 people under age 30. We know there's absolutely no benefit of giving a vaccine in young people, and there's great harms, as I'm describing now, including death. So uh, I think parents ought to be very, very strong on this. No needle in the arms of children. And if they say they can't go to school, they have to figure out some other thing, show up to school anyway and just defy it or take a year out of school and do something else. But the health of somebody comes first. These vaccines in no way, shape or form are healthy. They're frankly dangerous to children. And there's great concern. Remember, they haven't been studied in terms of do they affect growth and development? Do they have any long-term effects? Do they long-term promote the risk of cancer? And as I've already implied with Pfizer, and we think almost certainly for Moderna, they are very likely to reduce fertility. So in young men and women who may wanna have families when they get older, we're greatly concerned. In the Moderna application, to the European Medical Association, they showed reduced fertility in animals. So this is all in the open right now. This is wide open. Our regulatory agencies are telling us they're dangerous. They have official warnings. The science is telling us that they're not working. The science is telling us it's biologically dangerous. This is all in the open. So if our governments say it's safe and effective and you have to take it to go to school, the public should understand, no, it's not safe. No, it's not effective. And no, I'm not gonna take it because I want to remain healthy. I don't want to be injured by these uh, vaccines. Yeah. All that information is out there. And um, I regularly check up and, and have a look and see, because obviously there's things coming out every day. But what's concerning is the amount of fact-checking that you're getting. So people listening might look up something that we've been discussing and they'll get these fact-checkers coming in saying, we determine that's false. Not a single Australian has been given the opportunity, at least from our government, to make an informed decision. Uh, we can't speak um, openly about any negative consequences of the vaccine, uh, because if you do, you get your posts removed from social media and you get your account blocked. And, and what we're posting is, is factual. We're not making it up. 
we're just resharing what we've read somewhere else and i'll make sure all of my content is backed up by studies i don't just post anything um, but they get removed I, I think how can how are people supposed to know and make the right decision for their health for their family's health if they're not given the opportunity and it, it's just a, a constant we're in a constant state of fear in this country because there's no discussion on alternative treatments other than the two vaccines we have available so people are thinking okay if i get vaccinated and i do end up in hospital that's the end of me, which is likely the case because they're not being offered alternative treatment options. It's, it's not spoken about. So these are the real serious, serious problems that we're facing. Um, and like my father's been vaccinated I and mean, he's going to be walking around with a false sense of security that he's protected. He's protected. He's got a one in, I think he told me he's 68 years old. He told me that with the, vaccine he's now got a one in two million chance of dying from COVID-19 and that's the numbers that have been passed down through government through the media I'm very concerned as to what's going to happen when when eventually we do get out of this lockdown if it happens at the rate it's going it won't happen what's going to happen to all these people that think they're safe and they're protected from a vaccine that as you've described perfectly it's not effective it's dangerous and it's not the solution. This whole concept of max vaccination to give us our freedom back, which is a little carrot they're dangling in front of us to force us or coerce us into getting vaccinated. Um, it, it's, it's the freedom. We're walking outside in some uh, local government areas around Sydney. You have to wear a face mask outdoors. Otherwise, it's a, 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 a big fine. And a month prior to that coming into place, they'd said there wasn't a single case of outdoor transmission recorded in the country. So they're contradicting themselves, but unfortunately we have to, if we don't go along with it, we're getting fines. They've got military out patrolling the streets with an, a heavy police presence around Sydney. They're, they're door knocking to make sure people are complying with self-isolation. It's, it's very full on here. And I think it's, it's scaring a lot of people. Um, now, in regards to the spread of COVID outdoors, is it unlikely to spread outdoors? Now, there's been wonderful studies, one from Singapore showing it basically doesn't spread outdoors. And so I just let me comment about your messaging of, of uh, censorship. And um, that's one of the reasons why if you, when people listen to this podcast, they notice I've given so many authors and so many citations so everything I'm giving is findable. You know, in the United States, we've been threatened to the point of the Federation of State Medical Boards, who actually determined my medical licensure, has said they're going to go hunting doctors uh, who are spreading, quote, misinformation. So I expect my license to be hunted down, and I'm going to need to defend it by all the, the data that I've quoted. Uh, but this is, um, it's not a fair fight. Our government officials are the ones giving misinformation. They're saying it's safe and effective when it's not the literature and they don't back up. The government does not back up what they're saying. Okay. So they say it's safe and effective and you're right. It's been, it's called propaganda. It's false information given by those in authority and the acts that are being done are called malfeasance. So that's wrongdoing by those in position of authority at that setting. There's no more. We can't go to the courts and file a lawsuit and say, we're right and side with us. We can't. Uh, we can't uh, just say, well, listen to our arguments and, and oh, now suddenly the government will understand. That's not going to happen. What's, what's in the minds of people right now is to promote as much fear, suffering, hospitalization and death as possible, and then force the vaccine into people. That, that is the program, okay? And so the only way to stop that program is to not let the vaccine into the human body. When that happens, and there's enough people that just say no, the whole program shuts down. They, they can't do anything without getting that needle into arm. And then you'll be able to figure out what in the world is behind all this. So, you know, it's, it's, I hate to go on a podcast and encourage civil disobedience, but that's what it is. There have been marches in the UK demanding ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. They've had rallies in uh, Italy, where they filled all the squares in Italy, cheering zero hospitalizations with early treatment. Uh, we know in the UK and Germany, they've had a lot of discussions and they said no vaccination of children, none. Okay. We know that Japan, close to you, 
is saying, listen, we're, we're only going to vaccinate some really high risk seniors. They have, I think, 17% of people vaccinated. It's a very old society there in Japan. So look around the world and see what uh, uh, what's going on. And, you know, you may have to go out there and go jogging without a mask and see if somebody can catch you. Um, I know in Canada, they have, I was very similar to Australia. I know um, Mike Martinitz, who's a great guy. He runs one of the best podcasts in Canada. He crosses the border all the time. And they say, hey, pull over here and get a get another nasal test. Hmm. And he says, listen, none of the nasal tests have ever been approved by any regulatory agency for asymptomatic screening. All they do is generate false positives. And the World Health Organization, as of June 25th, says stop asymptomatic testing. So you know what Mike does? He goes, I'm leaving. Bye. They go, no, you can't leave. He goes, yes, I can. And he leaves. Yeah, that's, so that's, I, that's I, what I, we need I, to do. Really. Yeah, I think that's, that's what it'd be. He just leaves. He just leaves. He said, sorry. I think the, you know, people are just going to have to do this. And you know, we have students right now. It's, it's mid-August. They're going to show up to school and they're being told they have to take the vaccine. It's not safe. It's not effective. In fact, the United States, the government says it's voluntary. So it's against the law to mandate a voluntary vaccine. That's investigational. And some students are going to show up on campus and they're going to say, listen, I'm a student in good standing. My parents pay the tuition and I'm here. What are you going to do about it? And they're not going to be able to do a single thing. What are they going to do? Call in the police and remove you know, 20,000 students from a campus? It's not going to happen. It's yeah. not going to happen. So the, the bottom line is people are just going to have to break through this and it's going to settle down. You know, Texas, we've got a great spirit. Our, our governor has said, listen, no uh, mandates uh, on vaccines, on masks. Uh, no vaccine um, discrimination. You can't even ask about someone's vaccine status in government agencies. Now, still the private agencies are still trying to push this agenda and we're coming to a a tension point right now. And myself included, I could be forced out of the hospital um, for not taking the vaccine. Now I've had COVID-19, I've fully recovered. I've been exposed to tons of it since having it. I know I'm naturally immune. I know I can't get it. And I know the vaccine can only harm my body. So under no circumstances, am I going to accept something that's going to harm my body? It goes against every religious, uh, closely held religious belief in every religion in the world. So people have strong medical and religious um, exemptions. Everybody does for these vaccines and they need, to, um, they need to express them. The longer this drags out, the better. You know why? Because at, this, at some point in time, there's going to be a fatiguing of this whole process. The worst thing that can happen is people show up at these vaccine centers and start taking the vaccine and capitulate. That's the worst thing that can happen. It, I, it happened in Iceland. They got burned. They have a huge outbreak right now of COVID-19. It's happened in Israel. Israel three months ago was the darling. Remember, everyone said, oh, they're yeah, vaccinated. Look how good they are. Now Israel is a mess. It's happened elsewhere. You want to keep your population healthy. You want to keep them unvaccinated and keep people in fit. And listen, they get COVID-19. Delta is the mildest of all the variants. It's about four times milder than the British variant. It's the easiest. I have patients with Delta right now. I'm going to pick up some cases after we get off. I can treat them easily. Um, It's not nearly as scary as the original Wuhan wild type spike protein. When I had it, I had the British variant. That was way stronger than Delta. It got into my lungs. Would you say but, it's more um, contagious than, would you say the Delta variant is more contagious it, than the original? It's, you know, they test the contagiousness in a test tube, Chris. So they actually put the virus on a cell and see how quickly it affects. It, it doesn't really apply to human populations. The contagiousness in a human population depends on how many people are naturally immune. So in Texas, uh, I testified in March of this year, March 10th, that we are at 80% herd immunity based on standard equations. So the virus can't spread much in Texas. So, you know, I'm going to go to church later on today. We're going to be inside with 500 people sitting shoulder to shoulder. And the virus, even if it's there, it can't spread very much because we have herd immunity. We don't wear masks uh, and it's going to be perfectly uh, fine. The contagiousness is determined in a test tube. What's making Delta a bigger problem, and I agree, and I underestimated this uh, in a lot of my presentations, is because the vaccinated people get Delta. And they carry it and they spread it to others. So the vaccinated people are the ones making Delta worse for everybody. That's the problem. Yes. Okay. Uh, before I let you go, uh, asymptomatic, that, that's the big thats the big topic, is that if you've got the virus, you can spread it without knowing you've got the virus. Now, that's their reasoning for, as I said, some places you've got to get tested every three days if you're leaving your local government area. Certain um, 
work, for example, uh, health workers have to get tested regularly, even if they're perfectly fine and healthy. Does this, if you have the virus, but you have no symptoms of the virus, asymptomatic, can you spread the virus? That's a great question. You know, there were earlier papers saying 30 to 50% of the spread occurred from asymptomatic people. And so finally, two studies really dug in on this, one by Madewell and one by Cal. The one with Cal is like 10 million people. And it basically showed one cannot spread the virus if it's asymptomatic. If indeed it's there, which is very rare, people are forming antibodies to it and, and isolating it, or they've recovered from it and they can't spread it. So, you know, I'm a doctor. I go into a major medical center every day. Do you know, I've never had an asymptomatic test. I've never been stopped to check for tests. In fact, I had COVID-19 myself and I was worried, you know, if I come back in the workplace, am I going to spread it? And so I called employee health. This was back in October. I said, what do I do? Do I need a test? She goes, oh no, no. As long as you don't have a fever and your, your cough is controllable, you can come back after, I think it was 10 days at the time. And I said, really? She goes, oh yeah. She goes, if we, if we keep doing the test, the, the test stays positive for months afterwards. We'd never have any nurses come back to work if we kept testing people. So I realized that these tests, all they do is generate false positives when people yes, are asymptomatic. Yes. So it, Chris, there's no role, even the World Health Organization says, stop, stop doing it because all it's doing is a waste of tests. It doesn't accomplish anything. And all it does is generate false positives. We have to focus. There are a few Australians who are going to get sick with COVID-19, focus on them and treat them. Your dad who took the vaccine, even if he didn't take the vaccine, he would have had less than a 1% chance of getting COVID-19. He still has less than 1% chance. Taking the vaccine didn't influence his life at all with respect to COVID-19. Do you see what I mean? You, you just put it in that perspective. He had a less than 1% chance of getting it to begin with. My mom, who's 81, she didn't take the vaccine. She's been following this. Um, and, and, you know, she has a less than 1% chance of coming in contact with COVID-19 if she doesn't. And the same thing is true if you take the vaccine. Most people can live with 1%. You have a less than 1% chance of getting in a car wreck today. Well, so do I. Most of us can live with a less than 1% chance. So it's hard for the human mind to calculate these percentages, but less than 1%, I would take that. Yeah, so the idea of, of making healthy people walk around with a mask is really the only thing it benefits is keeping our um, ugly mugs hidden. That'd be it. <laughs> well, I would say this, what we should have is we should have sick person policy rules. This would be way more, you're right. We're focusing on masking well people and vaccinating well people who are not going to get exposed to the virus. It's a total waste of time. And that's the reason why that pillar number one and pillar number four that everyone's been focusing on is really missing the boat. If we focus on sick people at home and then have high quality hospital care. That's where this needs to be. So if we had a policy, for instance, all the kids go back to school, no vaccine, fine. But if a kid starts to get sick, get them out of school immediately and go home and go into quarantine, get a test, fine. If we have uh, uh, rules where parents can flexibly get off of work and get out of the workplace, I think a few years ago, a lot of us used to have a cold and we'd show up to work or school anyway. Yeah. We can't do that anymore. So if we actually had sick person policy efforts and get off this mask and off the vaccine, that would be the smartest thing. We're going to have to do that anyway, Chris, because masks and vaccines don't work anyway. So we still have to get to sick person policies and that's where we should spend all of our attention. Yeah, Doctor, thank you very much. It's been a privilege to have you on. I really enjoyed talking to you. I'm sure everyone that's listening will learn a thing or two. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on.